The title of this morning's message is God's Perfect Plan. Who wants to discover God's perfect plan for their life? I think that's always a a question on our minds. What is God's plan? What is God's doing? What is he doing in my life, the situation? You know, there's a couple of movies that that I'll I'll watch uh, over and over again just because I like them. They're kind of corny, but for me, I just like them. And one of them is National Treasure. Have you ever seen that? Oh, wow, right. I could just watch it all the time, especially the first one. And uh, as I was looking over my study this morning and thinking about God's perfect plan, uh, if you don't know what National Treasure is, it's a story of some treasure hunters who are looking for, I think, uh, the, like, the Solomon's Temple treasure or the Knights Templar's treasure or something like that. Uh, they're looking for a treasure. And it, the, whole, the, whole, uh, the whole movie, the guy that's looking for him and his friends, they're always in this predicament. And one of his friends is always asking him, like, hey, what are we going to do next? And uh, Nicolas Cage, who's the, the, head, the lead actor, he always, you know, he's like, what's the plan? He's like, I'm working on it. So in the pro- he doesn't have a plan. He just kind of just makes it up as he goes. Um, so thankfully, God's not like that. God doesn't make it up as we go. Sometimes you might think that, but God's not that way. Another movie that I like is Pirates of the Caribbean. And I can watch that all the time. And I think, I think they're coming out with a new one. Is that true? Is that, okay, thank you. All right. So they're coming out with a new one. And there's also uh, one of the scenes in there where Jack Sparrow, who's the, the, pirate, the bad pirate that we want to turn good and cheer him on. Pirates are bad in reality. But anyways, in the movie, he's good, kind of. I'm not endorsing pirate, piracy of any sort. So <laughs> I'm just saying it's a funny movie. There's this part where he, and he's always getting in a predicament, and he's, he comes up with these plans. And one of the, uh, the officers of the English Navy says to his other officers, do you think he has this all planned out, or is he just making it up as he goes? And that, too, reminded me of sometimes what we might think of God. Does God have this all planned out, or is he making it up as I go and I make decisions? God's not like that either. God has a perfect plan and guess what? Sometimes, or most of the time, he doesn't tell us what it is. We just need to trust him. So that's the message, and let's go eat. No, just kidding. Amen, <laughs> Amen right? Like, that's why we love coming to this church. We eat. No, but first we're going to eat God's word. But let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for this day that you've given us in this country and the freedom that we have to come and worship you openly and declare and proclaim your name as a body of believers, and to the rest of this world as you lead us. And Lord God, we ask right now as we open your word that you would speak to us in a mighty way. I pray that you'd speak to every heart in this room. And Lord God, we would trust your plan for our lives, for our church, and for our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I said, God's perfect plan, we're going to see it unfold here in 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 a tiny way in the story of the wedding at Cana. So in John chapter 2, before we go here, I want to I look at verse 11 in particular. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. But verse 11 kind of gives us the overarching theme of the book, which we've talked about a few times now, but especially this chapter and about miracles and why God does things here in this story, but also in our lives. Look at verse 11. It says, this is the beginning of his signs, meaning a miracle, 
Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and this is the important part, and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That's really the key. The reason God does what he does in everybody's life is to manifest his glory. It's not so much for our glory or for our good. It's for God's glory. So throughout this story, think of that as I read it. God is doing this for his glory and why else? So his disciples believed in him so that we, his disciples said, this is God. This is who I can believe and who I can trust. And the same thing is true with our lives. God manifests his glory in our lives so that we would believe in him. Unfortunately, not everybody sees that. And even in this story, as we read through it, you'll see that there are people that don't understand. So let's read the story with that in mind, starting in verse 1. We'll go through the entire uh, first 11 verses, and then we'll come back and talk about it and make some application. And then we'll get to lunch, which everyone's excited about. So let's read. So on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And then we read in verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So that's the story of Jesus' first recorded miracle in the Gospel of John. So let's go back to the very beginning. As we see, they're all invited to a wedding, and many believe that Mary may have been like the organizer of the wedding, which is why she was, you know, a little maybe frustrated that they ran out of wine. And So that's the problem. They ran out of wine, which also reminds me of Pirates of the Caribbean. When they're always looking for rum, and they're always saying, why is the rum always gone? I'm not advocating the drinking of rum, so I'm just saying... The problem is, is the wine ran out. Well, what's the significance of that? So what? Well, the significance of this, especially in the first century, is that this would have been of an embarrassment to the couples who were throwing the wedding, especially the bridegroom's family. They were the ones responsible for providing for their son's wedding. And so it would have been an embarrassment for the couples and also probably the bride's family as well that they couldn't supply for all the guests. I don't know if that's always a fear of mine, not having enough food for a party. So, you know, I always make sure, I always want enough food. So there is an embarrassment here. Not only that, it was said that they could even, that the people could even have a lawsuit against the family for not providing enough wine. 
Doesn't that seem kind of weird? Like, hey, there's not enough wine here. I'm suing you. It sounds like it would happen in our in the United States for sure. So maybe Mary was tied into that, and she's like, hey, Jesus, there's they ran out of wine. That's the problem. One thing I want to know on a, on a different level is that in first century Jewish thought, wine was a symbol of joy and celebration. So if the wine's out, then, hey, the party's over. Everyone has to go home. The end of the wine would have signaled the end of the celebration and the end of joy. And so Mary didn't want that to happen. And so she approaches Jesus for a solution on this. Somehow she must have understood a little bit from, obviously, Jesus growing up in her home and being with her now for over 30 years, that he was divine in some sense. Or he could solve the problem for her. So she goes to Jesus here in verse 2 or verse 3 and says there's no wine. She's asking Jesus for help. She wanted Jesus to use his divine power in some sense to solve the problem. It doesn't seem like a bad thing, right? You go to Jesus when you have a problem. And this is where the tension begins because he says to his mother, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Jesus' response seems a little disrespectful. Imagine, imagine you're calling your mother, hey, woman, what does this have to do with me and you? Well, it wasn't meant that way. Obviously, there's a language barrier, cultural barriers. It was abrupt, no doubt. But it, was, it wasn't disrespectful in, in, in the way that we might think it is. So Jesus here was putting some separation between the relationship between his mom and him. Because Jesus was now going into his ministry full time. He was now going to serve his heavenly father and break his ties from his earthly mother and father. It's similar to that when you get married, when a man is called to leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two are to become one. There's a, a separation. Jesus, in a sense, is becoming married to his ministry. He's saying, what does this have to do with us at this time? My hour has not yet come. So there's really two things operating here. If, if you've ever noticed when Jesus speaks, there's the natural response. He's like, hey, I'm not going to do this right now. And then there's that underlying spiritual response that Jesus always gives to people. Have you ever noticed that in the Gospels? For example, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and what does Jesus tell him? You must be born again, and Nicodemus doesn't understand what that means. Or how about the woman at the well when Jesus says, if you drink of the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. And she's like, well, what are you talking about? I just wanted to drink of this water. Give me this other water that you're talking about. Or how about when Jesus told the religious leaders, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And they're like, it took 40 years to build this temple. How are you going to raise it in three days? Jesus is always speaking on a more spiritual level to those that he spoke to. And there's nothing different here with his mother. I remember the one, and, and I was just reading this this morning, where Jesus told the religious leaders, that if you're going to have eternal life, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. Otherwise, you will not have eternal life. And they were like, dude, that's cannibalism. That's, 
against the law of Moses. What are you talking about? Jesus spoke like that often to people. And here he does it with his mother saying, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Well, that hour, as we go through the gospel of your John, that word is going to be used over and over again. And it's used also in other gospels. There's an hour coming that Jesus was born for. He over and over says, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then in John 17, he'll finally say, the hour has come. The hour of what? His glorification, when he would die on the cross, when he would be fully glorified to the world. So he's telling his mom, you know what? You're wanting me to use my divine powers at this moment, but it's not the time to do that. As you see, when we just read, he does give a little glimpse of that for what reason? To glorify himself a little bit. And Jesus does that over and over again. He reveals himself little by little so that those are his, those that are his will understand and believe. And those that don't will not. They'll be resolved in their disbelief. So in this sense, he says, hey, my, my time, my hour has not yet come. The time to fully disclose the glory of God has not yet arrived. Now, Mary understood this enough to trust the Lord because look what she says in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. On some level, she must have understood, okay, he's going to do what he needs to do. Now, servants, he's probably going to come tell you to do something. I don't know what it is. I don't know the perfect plan. But whatever he tells you to do, Go ahead and do it. See, even Mary, the mother of Jesus, didn't understand fully the plan of God. And we all will never fully understand the plan of God. And as we'll see, it's just daily and daily, day by day, growing and growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior and understanding who he is and trusting him, who he is based on what he's done. So this is what happens. So what does Jesus do? The means of solving the problem. Look at verse verse six. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. So there were these huge water pots there that people used to uh, religiously cleanse themselves before they ate. And they must have been empty by this time because Jesus says to the servants to fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up, verse 7 tells us, all the way to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Now, Jesus turning the water into wine. I want to I stop here for a minute because Jesus' solution is, hey, even though it's not his hour, he's going to do something in their life. He's not going to do exactly maybe what Mary had planned on doing or when she wanted it. He's going to do it his way in his timing. And again, it's to save the family from shame and embarrassment, obviously. But not only that, think about this. Jesus heightens the celebration because he's bringing what? New wine and even better tasting wine to this event, this wedding. It makes it help. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus gave of the new wine in the new, or in the new wine skins, the wine. 
Jesus is this underlying theme of, hey, I have something better that is coming. This is a picture of what is coming. Because, again, wine represented joy, celebration, especially in the Old Testament. And even the the prophets in the Old Testament, they pictured wine in abundance when they talked about the coming Messiah, the messianic kingdom that was to come. They would always describe wine being there, an abundance of wine flowing, a, a, a big celebration. And in another sense, if you think about it, here's Jesus ushering in what? His kingdom, right? The Messiah has come. And he's giving this new wine. It's a distinction from the old covenant. This wine's ran out. And here is some new wine given by Jesus himself. Again, Jesus does things with a a hint towards the future as well. As I was studying this, I, I couldn't help but thinking here, Jesus, at his first coming, his inauguration of the messianic kingdom does a miracle where? At a wedding. And then you think of the book of Revelation in chapter 19, one of the first events that happens at the total consummation of the the final kingdom, what's it called? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Turn with me to Revelation 19, looking at uh, verses 6 through 9. This is is, a great story. And again, this is a hint to the future for each and every one of you, including me, whose Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. The same writer who wrote John, I believe, wrote the book of Revelation. He says this, in verse, starting in verse 6 of chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 19. He says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, The Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Here again, God in the the inauguration of the messianic kingdom does a miracle at the wedding. And I think it points and alludes to the final consummation when each and every one of us in Christ meet our Lord and Savior. A wedding feast where wine will be flowing in abundance. We were joking out front, joking like, hey, maybe we should... uh, uh, practice what we preach and I didn't but I didn't bring any wine so I'm sorry this morning so you have to wait for the kingdom of God to come fully if you like wine I don't like wine but maybe they'll have uh, Martinelli's there that'll be good <laughs> for those of us of the Baptist background you know we don't we don't we don't, we don't touch the alcohol but anyways Jesus solves the problem by bringing a new wine making the festival even greater. Because look what happens now as the head waiter tasted in verse 9. Look at what he says. The head waiter tasted the water which had become wine. And he did not know where, he came, where it came from. So he doesn't know where it comes from. He just sees all these servants bringing this wine to him that had already run out. 
It says, but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. So the servants knew where it came from, but the head waiter didn't. And the waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine, the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. See, it was the custom. Hey, let's bring out the best thing right away so that everybody can enjoy it. And maybe after their taste buds have dulled a little bit, you could bring out the old stuff. And he's like, hey, you did it in total reverse. You, he's thinking, you saved all this stuff. And he's, he's not chastising him. He's just like, you, you've changed the order. You, brought, you saved the best for last. And I thought about that. Isn't that like Jesus? Saving the best for last. Even in our own lives. And I want to I want to point out two things here. The because this reminds me of our world as well. God is the God of all things. And those who don't believe him experience his grace, what's called common grace. But they don't give him praise and glory because they don't know that it came from him. But then there's those who knows that all things come from God and we praise him all the time for everything. And the non-believer doesn't understand that. They think, I've done this, or this just happened by natural, you know, happenstance, or the earth just fell out of who knows where and created itself. But they're experiencing the grace of God, and they don't even know it. And that's called common grace. Because God tells us in his word that the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. He blesses the unjust and the just. They're just not aware of it, at least not yet. And, and that's what I see here. The head waiter, he's, there's nothing on him. He just doesn't know. He didn't know where it came from, it says. But everyone else did. And those that did, which brings us to verse 11, they see the manifestation of the glory of God in this great miracle. And because of that, what did they do? They believed in him. Now, they already believed in him, right? But they believed in him even more. They saw the glory of God manifested in the miracle. And I like this quote by um, a man named Philip Schaff. He's a church historian. And it's talking about this belief that just continues to grow. And that's how ours should be. He says this, faith is a continuous growth. And every increase of faith is a new beginning. Think about that. When God does something new in your life, you be, tend to like trust him even more. So our faith in Christ continues to grow and grow each time that he does something or we, or we experience him in our life. Our faith is a continuous growth and, and every increase of faith is a new beginning. You see, the disciples, remember now in our story over the past few weeks, they heard John pointing to the Messiah that's coming. And then they saw the Messiah come. And last week they sat down with him and learned about him some more. So they heard about him. They heard from him. And now they've seen a miracle from him. And they believed even more. The more time that they spent with the Lord and around the Lord, their faith grew and increased. How much more so is that for us? The more time that we spend around God, around God's people and God's word, our faith increases more and more. Again, faith is a continuous growth, and every increase of faith is a new beginning.
So since God has this perfect plan that we're not always privy to, let me just make point out a few application points here for us to not only to, to uh, act upon, but also to think about. And the first one is this. And we all know this, that God's ways are not our ways. When Mary came to Jesus, she was expecting him to maybe to do something. She didn't know what. And she didn't expect that response from him. And ultimately, if you think about it, she, he did do what Mary wanted, but it was his way and his timing. And he let her know that, hey, you're not going to tell me what to do. I, have a, I follow a different plan. So it's good for us as believers to remember that God's ways are not our ways. Just because we go to him in prayer and ask for something doesn't mean he has to do it. He doesn't have to do it right then and there. And guess what? He may never do it. How many of you are glad God didn't answer some of your prayers? I know. <laughs> right? I am. He, imagine if he gave us everything we asked for. It would be like me giving my seven-year-old Jonathan everything he asked for. He would like have candy and never go to sleep. He'd be a mess. And sometimes we ask for things like that, not understanding God's perfect plan for our lives. So trust God that his ways are not our ways and thank him for that, that he sees the future. And guess what? You can also do you can also trust God because God's timing is perfect. Again, God's ways aren't our ways, and his timing isn't ours, right? Because when we, want, when we go to God and pray, we want, like, when I stand up, it's going to be done. And unfortunately, sometimes it's not. You know, you want a healing. You want salvation for somebody. And you're praying just like God tells you, and there's two or more gathered. And, you know, you're, you think you're doing everything right, and it just seems like it's, it's not happening. It's been years. Long, long years. But we need to trust in the God who created all things, knows all things. His timing is perfect. As you're praying for that loved one that hasn't come to faith, don't ever give up. Keep praying. And thirdly, since God has a perfect plan, trust God to do exactly what is needed in your life. Even though you might not understand it, even though you might not like it, God knows what he's doing in your life. And for believers, I want to add this as a fourth point. Don't let the temporal block the future. Don't let the temporal block the future. And what do I mean by that? Is don't let what's going on in your life right now block what God has for you in the future. Being so focused on this temporal thing that you miss what he has in the future. And it reminds me of this wedding right here. They're so focused on, we don't have wine now, but Jesus was operating on another level. Another level. He's like, no, I, I have this wine that I'm going to give to you, and it's going to point to this future wedding feast that's not going to happen until I come again. Don't be so focused on the immediacy of things that we forget about the future. That happens to us all the time, right? Good and bad, right? We're just so focused on what's going on right now that we miss what God's going to do in the future, what he has planned for us in the future. I like what a, a church, early church father said. His name is John Chrysostom. He says this. 
He says, God keeps the best drink for his children. For the most part, for the last, many a time, even for heaven. It's a reminder that, you know what? Our ultimate joy is not here. Again, sometimes we want our joy right here and right now, right? Why can't God do it right now? But guess what? As believers, this is not our home. We look forward to a home that we cannot see yet. And in there, there's going to be joy everlasting. There's going to be wine in abundance. And we talk about this often, and I read from Revelation all the time about it, of no more sickness, no more crime, or no more pain, for the old things have passed away. The new wine has come. I pray that it encourages you, even in the midst of what you're going through, don't let the temporal block the future, that future joy that we should have. And finally, an address to those who do not believe God. I would say this, don't overlook the God of the, miracle, of the miraculous. Every day, every person experiences the common grace of God, life. Maybe blessings, jobs, great relationships, right? There's, there's nothing that says you can't have a, you know, a good life without God. There's many people that could attest to that. But, but you're missing out on the God who supplied that. And I would say don't miss out on that. Don't be like that head waiter who was like going and thinking of natural reasoning that, hey, you saved the best for last. You reverse the order of things when really it was the God behind the miracle that did that. And for those of you that do not believe this morning, you're, you're missing out on so much because you don't see the God of the miraculous. You just look at the here and now, maybe what you have done or what, what good fortune has fallen on you when really it's God operating behind the scenes in all things. That's one of the things that I like about the book of Revelation. It kind of peels back the curtain of the natural and you see the spiritual battle that's going on, good and evil. How God is working through all things and how even the evil is working through all things and how God ultimately gives the victory to the believer. And really, that's what the book of Revelation is about. Victory for those who hold on, for those who endure. So, again, I would encourage each and every believer this morning, don't let the temporal block the future. And for those who do not believe, don't overlook the God of the miraculous. God has a a perfect timing in our lives. Let's trust him for it and continue to follow him and grow and grow in our faith and understanding of him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. How a story that was written close to 2,000 years ago, a story that is real and happened, speaks to us even today. And I pray, Lord God, for those of us who believe in you, that you would help us to continue to trust in you trusted your perfect plan that we will never see, that we may never know, but we know that you're in control of. Help us to hold fast to what is true, and that means holding fast to you. Just as you told John, write these things because my words are true. And Lord God, for those in this room who maybe don't trust you yet, maybe not even believe you, I pray that you would begin to work in their hearts and their minds, that they would be able to see you working in their life and in this world. And Lord God, that they would one day fall down and trust in you for all things, and you would give them eternal life. 
We thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. And I just, again, want to pray for our church in particular. Thank you for these past 13 years, the ups and downs, the trials and tribulations, the coming and goings of many people, and all who have been part of this church. We thank you for them. We know that this is your perfect plan for our church. And we will celebrate it today, Lord God, because we trust in the God of the miracles. We thank you, Lord, and pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen.